we, we started off this year with this series because I believe that this word that God has given me, this deconstruction word, and like I said, I know that it's got some negative connotation out in the world. Um, philosophically, I was talking with Pastor Michael um, yesterday afternoon uh, he's, as he's preparing to fly in in two weeks for our celebration. Uh, we've got a crew actually coming from California. My house is going to be slam-packed. Uh, we've got like six different people uh, coming in from California to, to celebrate with us. And uh, so one of them is Pastor Michael and Cheryl. And, and so I was talking with them and I said, I know that philosophically this word, even the rooting of this word is in a uh, kind of a negative connotation. This deconstruction, what it means, it, it was coined by a French philosopher, um, and he, the way that he means it, the way that he created it was to say that there's no absolute truth. So you should just study and get as much knowledge as you possibly can because there's really, at the end of the day, there's no absolute truth. So just, so just pick apart everything and, and ask a bunch of questions and, and, and just question everything and get a whole bunch of knowledge. So I feel like part of that is really good. You should ask questions. And you should study and pick apart things. But I don't believe it's because there's no absolute truth. It's because there is absolute truth that we should ask questions because we don't want to just float around the universe not knowing things and not understanding things. And especially when it comes to faith, we should be asking questions uh, that apply to the faith in our life. And so um, for our purposes, applying the term to Christian faith, we can define deconstruction as the process of taking apart and examining an idea, a tradition, a practice, or a belief to determine its truthfulness, its usefulness, and its impact. That's what deconstruction means to me in a spiritual sense. It's, it's breaking things down and asking questions and tearing apart our thought processes, the reason why we believe things, traditions and rituals, and asking, is it truthful, is it youthful, and is it not youthful, useful, <laughs> one week off and I can't speak, uh, truthful, useful, and impactful, okay? Because if it's none of those, the question becomes, why does it need to be in our life? If it's not truthful... Why would we want to hold on to it? If it's not useful, then why would we want it attached to us? And it's not impactful, then why would we want to attach ourselves to it? And so I want you to ask questions. I want you to, to, to wonder, why do, I, why do I believe this? Or why does the church always preach this? Or why does, why does Christianity sit here in this thought process? Because it's good, because sometimes what you'll find is that there are men and women that preach the word of God, that preach their opinion other than the truth. And we need to question those things. I've said it before. I don't mind if somebody comes up and asks me, well, you know, pastor, what you said, does that really, is it really what it means? Because if, it, if it's not, I need to know. Like if, I, if I'm, well, maybe I studied wrong. Maybe, I'm, maybe I was tweaked a little bit uh, on, on some th thought process. I, a buddy of mine that was actually here uh, in October, Tommy, uh, me and him, we have sparring debates uh, on faith. Uh, and, and so he called me this week and, and we were talking about uh, some things. If you, if you listen to the Bible Project, by the way, it's an amazing podcast. They will tweak your brain out, by the way on your faith because they, 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 they do, they dive into some things that you're like, oh, I've never thought of the Bible that way. They talk about like the fact that dragons are in the Bible. Dragons. Like, um, I'm not sure that's how they sound, but uh, 
but that's, you know, how else, I mean, whatever. But like, they have, listen, they had a whole 20-week uh, podcast on, on where the dragon is located throughout the whole Bible and talk about it and the spiritual importance of the, the said dragon and, and how it ties in spiritually. It's not just like a cool thing like, oh, there was a dragon. Like there's, a, there's an actual spiritual theme of the dragon throughout the Bible. Um, and so like we, we were talking about it. And so he posed this question. He says, was Jonah really eaten by a well? I was like, oh Lord, where are we going with this? And he goes, because when you break down that word, it actually is tied back to what people would call dragon back in the old language. And I'm like, okay, I'm gonna have to go study that. But it's good to, to challenge ourselves. Now, does that, is that a salvation issue? Absolutely not. I don't care if you th- think that Jonah was swallowed by a fish, a whale, a dragon, or a unicorn. I don't care, okay? Um, the fact is, is that Jonah was swallowed by an animal for a purpose, and it, and it created a storyline that we can learn from, but also uh, it, it spread uh, God's purpose through that story. It wasn't just some made-up thing. So it's good to, to question. It's good to, to say, hey, does this hold value in my life? I love what Cole said last week uh, about the Bible being the hammer. That the, that, that the hammer and used in construction is both used to tear down and build up. That it's used in, in both senses to, to knock things down and knock walls and knock uh, studs uh, out of uh, where they are and to tear things out. I mean, that's all of our favorite day when it comes to renovation. Demo day is the best because it's, you know, it's not even, you don't grab the little sissy hammer either. You grab the hammer that's going to do the most damage. Uh, and, and I, you know, when we would watch, we, in that se- when everybody was watching HGTV, because I feel like we all had that season all together, um, because they had like a bajillion re- uh, renovation shows, and they would mark the walls with an X so that they knew where, uh, where to hit, and then they'd just give them, hand them sledgehammers. Yes! Yes! Like, how many ever have had their life where they're like, I just need a sledgehammer? <clears throat> I just, I don't want this dinky hammer. I don't want the Walmart heart brand hammer that's going to break off, okay? If that's all you can afford, amen. We've got some heart tools lying around the church, okay? But every now and then, you want to grab this gigantic, you know, 10-pound sledgehammer that's just going to, it's going to, it's going to knock some things down, okay? That's sometimes in our life, we need those. But the great thing is, is the same tool that tears down is the same tool that rebuilds, and the Bible is that. And I loved when Cole mentioned that, that the, the same tool that we use to, to, to allow our lives to be ripped things out of our life, to allow ungodly things to be separated from our lives is the same tool that speaks life back into us. I loved that. So I'm going to give you the scripture that kind of sets the base for, uh, has been setting the base for me for this, uh, this series. And then I've got four thoughts for you uh, for our message today. So 2 Timothy 2.15 says this, do your best. By the way, do you see anywhere in those three words that says be perfect? Okay. Because I think it's super important because we want to put perfection on ourselves and God is saying perfection is something we strive for, but it is what I'm calling you to is do your best to present yourself to God as one approved a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. So when we talk about deconstruction, when we talk about laying foundations of our life, 
It's not that we are trying to be perfect so that everybody thinks that we're better than. It is to do our best. And here's the thing. He sets parameters to not be ashamed and to handle the word rightly. To show the world that we love Jesus. And then once they see that, be able to point them to truth. We're doing our best, not for people to go, oh, well, you're so much better than me. No, 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 no. I'm doing my best to, to live in God's image, to live in, in, in the, uh, the, the call and the will of God for my life so that I can show a world my God is good and his love and that when they walk with me there, I can rightly t- speak the truth to them. That is laying a good foundation. So today, part of deconstruction and building a good foundation is that we have to learn this this very key theme, which is community. Community. We cannot do life independent of ourselves. We can't. This idea that I can make it on my own, this idea that I can pull myself up from uh, by the bootstraps and I can be uh, my, I can be my own savior and I, I'm strong enough and I'm this and that is, is a bunch of garbage that the enemy has lied to people over and over and over again to get you to live outside of the will of God and not trust people. No matter who you are or what you have told yourself, you can't thrive in life alone. You need some people to do it with. Amen? And I know that even saying that, it pushes against some of our very thought process. What people? Can I tell you that, and, 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 and you introverts can write me emails later, scott at fcpeople.church, okay? Or you can text me evil things, 818-3638. I don't care. I've got big shoulders. But your introvertedness or your extrovertedness has nothing to do with being around people. Has nothing to do. Because every introvert will tell you, I want people. I just don't know how to do it. And that's fair, right? I don't know how to engage in people, so I get nervous or scared. And your energy drains. Okay, so this is the difference. An extrovert can get energized by being around people. An introvert can be uh, depleted by being around people. It doesn't mean you don't need people. It just means that you have different ways of recharging. You still need people. You still need community. You still need people to have in your corner and back you and and support you and love you and encourage you and also challenge you. It's just that you may not people as well as other people, and that's okay. But your introvertedness is just an excuse to say, I don't want to be around people. That's a lie. That's the enemy telling you to, to run away from that because it may actually find you freedom and it might actually find you healing and it may actually find you the hope that you need and the avenues you need to find God in unique and powerful ways. So my first thought this morning in understanding why community is so important is the word common unity, okay? Common unity. This is where we get the word community. It is a derivative of these two words, common unity, community. It was because people would, when, when you look at how it, it, maybe it's, you know, we're nerdy history aspect type people. So it's kind of interesting, like how do villages start? How do, you know, how did neighborhoods start? How, it was people wanting to find common ground with other people. 
and, and, and little villages would start. And they, they, it's not that they were cookie cutter or that they all thought the same way, but they found things that unified them. They found belief systems that unified them. They found uh, areas that they enjoyed, like people in Chicago are nuts, and I think that they're broken. And so they found really cold places that they liked. Can they communicate? And, and it's common. So, and, and it's interesting, you know, because you think of, we talked about last names uh, last year, which was only like a month and a half ago. Uh, but we talked about like, how, you know, last names weren't common things, but they started to become common when they said what you did and where you came from, right? And, and, you know, that's why Smith is a big last name is because there was like blacksmith and this Smith and that Smith. And then they started to just drop it and it just became Smith. You know, and so this idea of people coming together and doing life together is how, how, how uh, communities got together and how they were created. And they were originally built around a lot of things. Uh, belief systems was a huge part of it. I mean, read the Old Testament, right? The Israelites, got, they, they traveled together because they had common belief systems, common uh, uh, policies and politics, and, and they traveled together, and they would fight other groups, and they would go to other lands that they had common group, uh, thought process and common, uh, common politics and common belief systems. America really, and, and, and the modern world is, is a unique sense as is, is we're telling everybody, be yourself, be independent of everybody, but how do you work with people when everybody is independent? How do you live life with people when everybody is independent? When we're telling everybody to, to not put, get into the cookie-cutter mold, but yet there is a mold that we are, are drawn to, and it's not that we look exactly the same or act exactly the same. Me and Cole, we're not the same person. We don't preach the same way, but he can still bring the word of God. He still loves Jesus, so, so we fit the same mold. We're just, we, we have different personalities and perspectives and through it, but we have a common unity. And we've got to have that. We've got to have that, that capability of saying, what, <laughs> here's a great question, what brings us together? Because the question that the enemy keeps throwing out and everybody grabs a hold of is, what tears us apart? Oh, you think that, that race is, is uh, an accident? Think about this. We are still beating the same drum and we will keep beating the same drum till Jesus comes back. Why? Because instead of race uniting us, the enemy allows it to tear us apart. I, you know, first of all, anybody that says they don't see color, you're lying, okay? Unless you're colorblind, then you really don't see color. I get that. But you still see black and white. When, when, when you're, if you have a, a friend that's black and walks in the room, you go, I don't see his color. That's a bunch of lies. Embrace the difference. Don't allow it to tear you apart. Don't allow the world to say because you are different colors that you're different people. See, the, the common unity isn't what we look like, it's who we are. It, it's, in, it's in what we allow to come out of us and, 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 and birth in us. Think about it, and, and rightfully so, I get it, and y'all can do with this thought whatever you want, but you know, when I moved here from California, y'all had a preconceived notion of what California meant. Don't act like you didn't. Can still do, okay? And I understand that. Because, listen, good por portions of it, most, most portions of it is crazy. And, and I lived there half my life, okay? I get that. But could you imagine, let me, let me put it this way. Let me, let me bring it real, real, real down for a minute. 
How many people still won't walk into this church because they think that I'm from California? Think about that. Because if you were there at one point, not all of you, but some of you were there because you've told me and I'm okay with that. I don't care. How many people are missing out on God's purpose because the enemy says, don't listen to that person? Oh, well, they're this color or they believe this thing or they, uh, they, they grew up in this area and so you can't trust them or you, before you ever get to know them. The, the enemy knows how to use devices to tear people apart, and the Bible says we need to draw people together. I had one, uh, I've had many people actually ask me um, this, and, and, and I, listen, this isn't a race uh, uh, sermon, but it, listen, in the South, race is a big issue, right? Amen? I mean, let's, let's not beat around the bush. I've had people say, well, is there black folks who go to your church? I would love more of them. We've had, a, and believe it or not, if you did actually the numbers and looked at all the families that have come through, we've had quite a few. They, the fear is that they're the only one. And they all come at different times. So they don't see each other. And so through different seasons, we've had many come and go because why? Because society has said that if they're the only one that walks in, they're alone, even though they're in a room full of people. If you don't believe me, ask some friends that are of different color, Hispanic or black or Asian, doesn't matter. When, even they can walk in a full room. If they're the only one of their kind, they will feel absolutely alone. Our job is not to make their color disappear, but to embrace them because of their humanity. And, and so the enemy will say they're different. And, and I would say when we get to heaven, we may be different. What are you going to do when you get to heaven and maybe you're not white? Oh, I just messed up a whole bunch of people's theology. Because you thought you were going to look like you. You're not. The Bible says you get a, a, a new body, a heavenly body. I don't know what that looks like, but I'm dang sure, sure it's not American. I'm just, I'm just like, listen, you can hate me afterwards. I don't care. Um, like, a heavenly body doesn't scream American to me. Because guess what? The Bible is written from an Eastern context. Jesus was Jewish from an Eastern context. So you may get up there. If you have a problem with, with dark skin colors, I'm just going to tell you, you, you might, you might. I don't know. I haven't talked to Jesus. I don't know what our skin tone is. I'd be okay with a little bit of tan in me. Okay. okay? But we don't know. So the very thing that the enemy tries to devise in us has no, has really no factors. And that's just one of many. Pastor, what happens if gay and lesbians walk into your church? Praise God. <gasps> sinners. Okay. So we want to start calling sins out. Let's call sins out. I mean, <laughs> some of you are like, no, we're good. Like, it's okay. Like, pump the brake. But isn't that the funny thing is that we will, we're ready to call sins out when it doesn't look like us because that's what the enemy wants. And God says, hold up, wait a minute, pump the brakes. We can love people and stand in truth. Oh, let me say that. We can love people and stand in truth. I can say that a way of living is not acceptable to the Bible, but if they are not willing to live in that yet, then that's, that's on them, not me. I've told people, we, listen, you may not have known it. You maybe have. We've had many couples, at least three to five, that were uh, homosexual in nature. They've already been to this church. 
spent months in this church. You greeted them, shook their hand. I know. You didn't catch it. It's amazing, isn't it? Why? Because, and you know what the funny part was? They kept coming back. Why? Because despite what the world has said, the church should react to them. We love them where they were. And we still preach the truth. And so you can love people. You can love an addict and still stand on the truth. You, you can love the, the liar and still stand on the truth. It doesn't mean that you engage in uh, acceptability. It's not that you water down your words to them, but you love them in a way that shows them you're not a leper. Common unity will draw people together and will speak the truth. Um, I am fired up and I need to get moving on. So Acts 2, 1 through 4 is the perfect example of what this looks like, right? So when the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then there appeared to them divided tongues as a fire, and one sat on each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And we do not like this scripture because it makes us nervous and scares us a little bit. And so we glance over it. We know, okay, hey, it happened. Okay, good. Let's go. But I want you to look at this scripture. It says they, they the, the, those that were left after Jesus died, were together in one accord. Not a Honda. Bad pastor joke. Matter of fact, it's funny, uh, that's the only uh, translation, the, the King James or New King James Version, where it actually uh, specifically says uh, that. Um, they, they change that word in a lot of translations to just saying that they were together, but th there's a specific, specificity, specificity to it. There we go. Um, because not only were they in the same place, but they had the same heart. They weren't just in the room together, but they had the same purpose the same vision, the same calling. And that was, we're going to sit and we're going to pray and we're going to wait for, for whatever it is that Jesus said was going to show up. And we can get so tripped up on the second half of that. Oh, I don't want to go to a prayer gathering because what if this flaming tongue shows up? By the way, I've never had that happen, but I have had, seen people baptized in the Holy Spirit. And that's a whole nother lesson on, on what the Holy Spirit actually looks like because there's a lot of variations of Christianity that will say this is the only way that it's supposed to show up. Um, that's wrong. <laughs> Absolutely. I believe that was for them, how it showed up with the flaming tongues. Because quite frankly, I would get out of myself if I saw a flaming tongue over somebody's head. I think it was purposeful for that reason. But I have, show, I have been in prayer gatherings where people were baptized in the Holy Spirit. I have been in, 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 in the room where people started to speak in tongues and, and proclaim prophecy. And so we shouldn't get nervous over the move of the Holy Spirit, but we should embrace the realness of it because it was that. It was them being in unity that caused God to show up. You want to know why the big C church does not have the move of God the way that it used to? It's because we're so divisive that God can't show up in the room. So what happens when a church of two or 10 just start to get unified? God shows up. What happens when, when, when just, just a handful of people start showing up to prayer gatherings with the same mindset? I'm going to pray till God does something. I'm going to seek him, not for my own gain, but for his Holy Spirit to show up. God starts to move. Healing starts to happen. People's lives and minds and hearts start to change. Marriage is restored. Mindsets uh, re renewed. 
Over and over and over again throughout the Bible, especially in the New Testament, God encourages us and commands us to live in unity, live together for one another and in harmony. Those four things are very key in the New Testament. Why? Because we cannot achieve the purpose of the church if we don't get along and do it together. This thought came to me, and I want to share it. I'm probably going to say it twice just so it settles in your spirit a little bit. The enemy would rather us fight about church politics and policies than fight him for territory and souls. I believe one of the callings that Freedom Church has is the, to, love the, uh, to love the church, the hurt church. They're hard to love, though, because they, they very rarely will show up on a Sunday just by being invited. It's a long relationship because they've been hurt by somebody in the church. They've taken that as God hurt them. Or, they, or they've taken that, they've carried that, and now they, miss, they, they have an untrust to the people that they will walk into this room for. They, they're going to hurt me again. They're going to misuse me. They're going to allow policy and politics to define what Christianity looks like. And that is such garbage. And, and I believe that the church is hurt more by Christians trying to argue politics and policy inside the church than to fight the enemy for territory and souls. I will never, ever, 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 ever let policies and politics define how we move as a church. Do we need them? Yes. Even Jesus had rules for his disciples. But they are not going to define how we move and how we live and how we love the world around us. Because the common unity is Jesus. So my second thought, and I'm going to try to move through these quickly. Told you I'm not cold. Is that we can't do life alone. You may say, duh, this is a whole message. I want to, listen, you're going to reiterate. Listen, this is part of our mantra. This is part of who we are. You can't do life alone. We are better together. We are. And the enemy will tell you everything otherwise. Nope, you're better by yourself because somebody's going to hurt you. Yes. Hey, listen. Here's my guarantee. You stick around in church long enough, somebody's going to hurt you. Can we just get that out of the way? <laughs> can, we just, can, can we just like make that obvious? Like, listen, if you get to know people, at some point they're going to hurt you. The question becomes, did they maliciously do it? Or did they accidentally do it and now you're holding it against them? Oh, see, there's a whole other avenue. Because then forgiveness comes into play and humanity and how we deal with people. Because nine times out of ten, most people are not malicious. They're just, they're just, they accidentally do something. Or, they, or you take something that they did wrong or something that they said wrong. And now you hold it against it. And guess what the enemy loves to do? He loves to take that and make it a thing. Because instead of addressing it with them, what we do is what do we do? We hold on to it and we think about it. When we think about it, we compile, and we start to define how they're going to act based off of our thoughts. And by before you know it, and listen, this is the whole, you know, you wake up, and if you're married, your spouse cheated on you thing. It's the same concept. You have now created an emotional response that, uh, to an, uh, an action that never happened. How many spouses in the room have woken up mad at their spouse because they cheated on them in their dream? Come on, let's be real. Let's, let, let's, let's, let's have, some, listen, you liars. You liars. Uh, all of you. Nobody's that perfect and you can't control your dreams that well. Okay? But listen, my wife, my wife flat out told me the other day. I'm like, whoa, easy. Whatever I did in that little noggin of yours wasn't real. Okay? But it's the same thing with how we treat people. Because we get hurt by people, and instead of going and addressing it, 
we create the scenario in our head. And the enemy takes that and he starts to grow it. Oh, what they really meant was. You know why they really did that? You know, you know what they're going to do with that? And now you've created this scenario in your head. And now hatred starts to birth. Mistrust starts to birth. And the enemy goes, score one for my team. So we have to do things together. How do you defeat an army? Think about that. How do you defeat an army? With a stronger army. With the better army. Look at um, Exodus chapter 17. I'm going to tell you how this works. Verses 10 through 13. It says this. So Joshua did what Moses had commanded and fought the army of Amalek. Meanwhile, Moses, Aaron, and Hur climbed to the top of a nearby hill. As long as Moses held up the staff in his hand, the Israelites had the advantage. But whenever he dropped his hand, the Amalekites gained the advantage. Moses' arms soon became so tired he could no longer hold them up. So Aaron and Hur found a stone for him to sit on. And then they stood on each side of Moses, holding up his hands. And so his hands held study until sunset. And as a result, Joshua overwhelmed the army of Amalek in the battle. Moses could not do it by the great Moses. Couldn't do it by himself. God said, as long as you hold the staff up, you will win. Could you imagine the army knowing this and looking back and going, we're going to win, we're going to win. And then all of a sudden they start to see, we're not going to win, we're not going to win, we're not going to win. And then, you know, okay. Oh, oh. If Moses, what if Moses would have been like, leave me alone, I'm good, I'm good, I don't need your help. I'm a man. Don't touch me. Oh. I don't need help in my marriage. I can, I can figure it out. I, listen, I can do this. So you'd rather your marriage die than to get help. No, no, I don't need help in, in, in relationships and in friendships. I can do this on my own. I can, I can figure it out. I know, what, I know what I need to do. And so you, you, you start to get tired and weary and your arm starts to fall and people are like, hey, we're here for you. I don't need your help. Moses needed Aaron and her to stand there and, and not only stand there, but they found a stone and they let him sit down and then they, their, job, their, their one job was to hold the arms up. It wasn't to create the plan. It wasn't to redirect. Oh, well, you know, maybe you're tired. So, so maybe I'll grab the, the staff from you and I'll hold the staff. They wouldn't have worked, right? Their job was to hold the arms up. And with that, Joshua, could you imagine if you're Joshua? You're moving on behalf of Moses because he's your leader, but your leader's too arrogant to allow people to help him. Does that make you mistrust your leadership? Yeah. So we need people. We need to do this together. We cannot win life together. You need people. I will say this again. You need people. You need people. People who will pray for you. People who will encourage you. People who will disciple you and challenge you. People to hold you accountable. To fight for you and to fight with you. You need people to fight with in a healthy way. Yeah, one of the greatest uh, books that I've read on, on leadership is from Pat, Patrick Lencioni, the, the uh, Five uh, Somethings of Leadership. It was so impactful, the name of the book. Uh, and, but the whole point was this, is that, he, that we think as confrontation is bad. Confrontation is good. It's what grows you. 
It's what challenges you. It's what, but it's when it's healthy confrontation. It's when confrontation says it's not about you. It's about what we're dealing with. And so when we as Christians get together and we hold each other accountable and we, we, we live in this life where we're, we're pulling the best out of each other, there's going to be times where, hey, Kendall, I see you slacking here. And she's not slacking. I'm just, she's, she's right here. Nobody wants to sit right here anymore. Um, uh, so now I got to go deeper in. Um, but, you know, it's, it's that idea of, of, you know, she could say, oh, why are you coming at me? What's, why, why are you attacking me? No, I'm not, but I see, the, I see greatness in you. I see the ability of God to move in you, and I don't want you to just sit in mediocrity for the rest of your life. I want to pull the best out of you, and sometimes that means I have to challenge your thought process. We don't like that because it, we feel we're being attacked, but when done right, really what was happening is people are using the spirit to say, don't settle for okay. We need each other. And I'll tell you, I believe that we live in a generation where no more greater than we've ever been told that we can do this on our own, but we can not. Because this is what life is about. God made us to work together and thrive. If, listen, and I'm gonna, this thought process wrecked me for a minute, okay? If God was solely enough for man, he would have never made another human. You don't believe me. Let's go to Genesis. Okay, Genesis 2.18, what does it say? It says, then the Lord God said, what did he say? It is not good. Wait a minute. But the Genesis story is that God creates and says, it's good. It is good. I saw it to be good. I saw it to be good. And then he makes Adam and he looks at Adam and look what he says. He says, it is not good for the man to be alone. God isn't enough. He, he walked with God in the garden. God looks at his creation and said, it's not good for man to be alone. So I will make a helper who is just and right for him. You may say, well, that's about marriage. No, that's about humanity. It had to start with marriage because there was only Adam. He needed an Eve. But if he would have just stopped there, they, they, would, have, they would have tired of each other. Amen. Hello, married people. I need guys in my life that I can go to and say, hey, this is what life is about, and I'm struggling. Ladies, you need people to talk to that isn't your husband. Amen? amen. Now, not to talk about your husband. Amen? There's, you know, you got, you got to have some people. But you know, what I mean is, like, not negatively. Like, they, they can't be just, like, your, your venting spot, you know. So, so make, it, make it healthy. That's a whole other conversation. But God said it's not good that man should be alone. Because God knew we needed companionship to do life with. We needed it for our purpose and joy and fulfillment. God said it wasn't good because he knew that even in the connection with him, we would long for more. So we need people. So how, how can we build a strong spiritual house without people and good relationships, healthy ones that help build us together? The problem is we get hurt and burnt, and so we shove it in a room, hello, and never want to open them again. It's where that, that saying, you know, skeletons in the closet, we just hide the hurt. How many have ever cleaned your house by just shoving stuff in a closet because people were coming over? Come on, right? Like, it looks pretty on the outside, but you know, don't open that closet. Don't open that. Listen, there's many times where we tell people, oh, don't open those rooms, <laughs> I'll give you, I'll give you, I'll give you, uh, uh, you can walk to my house and you just don't open those rooms, <laughs> right? Why? Because we're, instead of cleaning them, we just throw everything in it. 
My wife says, stop showing people our bedroom because it's never the way I want it to look. <laughs> right? So, I, you know, half the time I, I, I do and don't, you know, uh, listen to her. And I'm just like, just peek in. It's okay. Uh, because they want to see the, but it, listen, our lives are the same way. Instead of dealing with the hurt, instead of dealing with the pain, instead of dealing with the past, we just go, okay, sweep it under the rug, hide it in the closet. Well, I'll deal with it some other time. When is some other time? When is enough enough? When will you take the time to be healed instead of just shoving it aside? And there are some things that we can walk you through, not on a Sunday morning, but uh, even what we went to in Chicago was about helping people find wholeness and healing in their story. We can sit in your story and get really uncomfortable to allow God to heal it. We don't like that. But in order to build our house properly, we have to. We have to find wholeness and stop, stop pushing things aside because it's hard. But we can't do it alone. We have to do life together. Which brings me to my third thought is that community, that togetherness, it brings healing. James 5.16 says, confess your sins to each other. That is tough. And pray for each other so that you may be what? Healed. The earnest prayer of a righteous person has great power and produces wonderful results. Can, I, can we pause right here? How many have ever been in a prayer gathering where, where that was quoted? The, the, the prayers of a righteous person produces great powers and wonderful results. Let's look at it in context. He's saying, he's talking about dealing with one another. He's not talking about a prayer gathering. He's talking about one-on-one. -on -one. He's talking about uh, people getting together and saying, hey, I trust you with my life, and here's where I'm failing. And I'm confessing my faults to somebody that I trust and will hold accountability to me. And then they pray for me. And those prayers... And so we mistreat and we misread and we misuse the Bible to say, oh, let's have a prayer gathering and let's get loud and let's get fervent for God. And God's going, no, 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 no. The scripture is talking about healing because we get together and we not in a group setting where you just pray quietly by yourselves and confess your sins in your brain. The enemy has stolen your voice, people. Because we stop talking to one another. We stop praying for one another. We stop praying with purpose and we start praying these vague prayers instead of these specific prayers, right? Because that's, that's a vulnerability. For me to have to come to, and by the way, just a generic uh, mindset, if you're a girl and you're struggling with girl stuff, don't go to a guy. And if you're a guy and you're dealing with guy stuff, don't go to a girl. That, that should be obvious, but it's not. It's how many marriages get ruined, Amen. In the church, you want to know how the, the enemy uses good things to make bad things. I'm struggling with something. I'm going to hold a, get a, uh, accountability, but I'm going to go to a female. Oh, the enemy is going to go watch this. Why? Because vulnerability creates intimacy. Vulnerability creates intimacy. And so if I'm going to be vulnerable, I'm going to be vulnerable with another guy. Now, marriage setting, I'm going to bring my wife in. If, it, if, if as a pastor, if a female needs to meet with me, nine times out of 10, it's going to be with my wife or it's going to be in a very public place because I'm going to put guardrails up so that the enemy does not have an avenue to tear me down and that person down. 
But we need that. We need James 5.16. We need to say, hey, listen, I'm struggling, and I've been trying to do this on my own, but I can't, and I need somebody to pray with me and to hold me accountable. We heal by finding people who we can rebuild with. Philippians 2, 2 through 5 says this, then make me truly happy. This is Paul speaking to the church at Philippi. Then make me truly happy by agreeing wholeheartedly with who? With each other. Loving who? One another. And working what? Together. This is like the, this is the trinity of togetherness. With each other, loving one another, working together with one mind and one purpose. And then he says, don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Amen. Be humble, thinking of others as better than yourselves. This is, listen, that scripture is also so taken out of context. That is not an avenue to beat yourself up. Humility does not look like making me less to make you greater. It's a healthy context of knowing who I am in Christ, but putting other people above that. It's to say, I know who God has created me to be. I know that I'm a son of God. I know that I'm a child. I know I've got a calling and a purpose. But guess what? I'm not going to be selfish and self-centered, and I'm not going to look at myself all the time. I'm going to invest in others, and I'm going to believe best for them. And we have used that to beat people down and say, you need to think less of yourself. No, you need to think rightly of yourself, and then you need to elevate people to a greater level. Can you tell that I'm passionate about people? Because the church will never function in its proper accordance if we don't do this together. I am way behind. Okay, we're going to, listen. Communities find healing, hope, and freedom, and revival when God's people model it first. My last thought, and this was a game changer for me. I heard this uh, from a message from Belonging Co. in Nashville. Be a mat carrier. Anybody intrigued? Be a mat carrier. What does that mean? I want to take you to uh, a scripture, Mark 2, 3 through 5, and this is, we're going to end here at this thought with be a mat carrier. And maybe you've heard this story before. I'm jumping off into like the kind of the middle of it. It says this, four men arrived carrying a paralyzed mat, a man on a mat. They couldn't bring him to Jesus because of the crowd, so they dug a hole through the roof above his head. Then they lowered the man on his mat right down in front of Jesus. Seeing their faith, Jesus said to the paralyzed man, my child, your sins are forgiven. These men woke up that morning not knowing what they were in for. They just knew that their friend needed to be with Jesus. There was no personal gain for the four men carrying the mat. Think about that. How many woke up yesterday with a laundry list of to-do lists? Every day I wake up, there's a to-do list that never gets done the way I want it to. Are we okay with God messing our to-do list up? If somebody called you and said, I need you now. Now this isn't like, oh, hey, I'm cleaning my house and I need you. But if they literally said, I need, I need you to drop everything. Come now. Would you make excuses? Would you do it? Would you be there for them? This paralyzed man could not get to Jesus on his own. So he needed his friends to drop whatever they were doing and carry him. Now, those are some good friends just off the right off the bat. Amen? First of all, he got four. Ever tried to move and get four people to stop what they're doing and help you? 
That's a challenge, okay? These four men picked him up and carried him from wherever they were, walked with this guy, walked with him. Now, could you imagine if you showed up to church and it was packed and there was people waiting to get in? Hey, listen, bro, we tried. I mean, you're good friends. You dropped everything to get him there and, and you got him there. Now it's just packed. Sorry, bud. We did everything we could. No, they said, we haven't done everything. And they, it's not their house. They climb this house. Now, be the, now, now, now you're the paralyzed man. Think about this. Now they're going, oh, hey, buddy, it's going to get real sketchy. Because now we're going to lift you up. Can you imagine what everybody else outside is thinking? What are they doing? Where did they get the rope? How did they get this? Like, my brain starts to think, how did they get the man on the house? Like, did they strap him down and, like, carry him up a ladder? Like, did they scale the, the, the house like a spider monkey and, and then, like, toss him? I mean, like, how did they get him on the roof? Now, obviously, if you understand Eastern culture, there was ways to get up on roofs, but still, it would have been sketchy. And then they get him on the roof. Now, what's the plan? It says they dug. How many would be upset if somebody dug through your roof? And opened a skylight and said, hey, be pretty messed up. So these four friends stop everything they do. They get him to Jesus. And then because it's too packed, they don't just stop there, but they press into what they, he needs. And so many times we, we don't press enough. We don't push enough. For ourselves or for our friends. We don't find healing because we're afraid to push into Jesus. So how can we lead anybody else there? These friends, they get them up on the roof and they dig through. And there's a, there's a whole other cultural aspect. They would have been kind of used to it because sometimes that's how they got dead people out of the house, which is a whole other message. That that's how they would get dead people out is to raise them up through the roof. And now they're thinking that somebody died because the roof is opening up. And really God is, is about to heal somebody who cannot walk. Dead things to life. This is what God does in our lives. But he can't do it without people. There's no personal gain. And when community carries each other's burdens, hurts, and struggles, we will treat them like our own. We are called to be mat carriers. Matthew says, go therefore into all the world. It doesn't have a personality trait. So enter my first comment about introverts and extroverts. Ah, I can't, I, I can't, I can't do that, Pastor Scott. Not good. Go therefore into all the world and proclaim Jesus. Baptizing the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Do you, anywhere in that, does it say anything about being good at it? Anywhere in there, does it say that you need to be able to speak well or be a people person? I'm not a people person. I, I don't have that. Doesn't, doesn't say that. Go, therefore, into all the world. Pastors, no. Leaders, no. Worship leaders, no. Kids ministry leaders, no. Bible study leaders, no. It says, go, therefore, into all the world. It means everybody. Everybody. We all have a calling to carry each other's burdens and to carry our story. You have a story. Therese, you can come up and as we finish, I want you to hear this. You have a story. Each and every one of you. And here's what the enemy does. The enemy either tells you one of two things. You are too bad. Don't share your story because people will look at you differently. 
or you don't have a story because you're too good. Nobody wants to hear my story. Nobody wants to hear how I was just a decent human being most of my life, and I never really got into a whole lot of trouble, and I was a straight-A student, and I like sports. This is my story. But in the midst of all that, I actually felt lonely and hopeless because I didn't really know who I was because when I stopped playing sports, I lost my whole identity. Because my identity was wrapped up into a, 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 a sport that I played and how good I could do something. And so when I had to stop outside of myself and ask myself, who am I? I didn't know. Well, you're the good kid that makes straight A's. Okay, but where does that take me when school stops? What's my story? My story was right before I was about to give it all away to the enemy, somebody stepped in and saved the day. You may be thinking, Jesus. No, my friend Teresa. But if it wasn't for my friend Teresa, I would have never met Jesus. It wasn't, listen, she ne- she'll never know the impact. She'll never know the impact that she made on my life. Because the weekend that I was supposed to go get drunk and high for the first time, I decided to go to church. What's my story? My friend Teresa didn't give up on me. For four months, every freaking week. Scott, you want to go to church with me? Oh, I know what church looks like and it's boring. It's useless. I want to go. Every week, Teresa would just come back up. Scott, you want to go to church with me? Nope. Scott, you want to go to church with me? Nope. What if she would have given up carrying the mat for me? I tried, God. I I tried to lead him there. I tried to get him to the point where he would just find a real authentic relationship with you, but he doesn't care. So I just left him outside of the house. I left him outside where you were. You do the rest. And she wasn't even like she was a good friend of mine, but she wasn't like my best friend. And it wasn't like she was like trying to get with me either because that, we, that was not our relationship. Some people are like, well, she was just trying to missionary date you. No, that's not what she was trying. She had a genuine care for me. Every week, Scott, do you want to come to church with me? And the weekend that I decided to go get drunk and high with my friend Bryson at his cousin's house, she came up to me and for some reason the words yes came out. You think that was an accident? Heck no. What's my story? Is that but for the grace of God, I could have gone down a whole different path. If you think that I'm going to sit quietly while the enemy steals people's purpose and plan and goals and and, and heart for them and allow them to go down a path where they don't think that they have a story and they can't make a purpose, then you've got another thing coming because go therefore into all the world, I will. Because people matter. I don't care if I ever have a mega church. I don't care if there's hundreds of thousands of people. Here's what I care about. I hope that I'm a Teresa to somebody. Because without my friend Teresa, the things that I've done in my life would not even come. Listen, this church would not be here if it wasn't for my friend Teresa, who none of you will ever meet, who still loves God, who still goes to church, who still is seeking the lost to this day. Is she a pastor? Nope. Because she was willing to carry her friend to Jesus. That's calling on my life. 
radically changed. My friend carried me to Jesus and then didn't stop. And she got on the roof and she did everything she could to get me to see the authentic relationship I needed. So, I know I've gone long today. That's what happens when I don't have two weeks in a row. I hope you hear this message today. You cannot do life alone. Fight the feeling because right now, even in some of you, you're going, I don't want people. Yes, you do. You need them. Get in a life group. If you've never been in a life group, get in one because guess what? It's where you will find relationship with people to say, hey, can we do life together? Because Sunday mornings isn't enough because half of us just, we we, we get in here as, as quick and we get out as fast. Life is done outside of two hours on Sunday morning. Do life. Get to, get to know one another. Carry the map for somebody. What would it cost you to invite somebody every single week? It costs my life. If you want to know what it looks like, it costs my life. who's the Scott in your world? Let's make it real. Nobody knows who brought Billy Graham to to, to faith, but many were changed because of who Billy Graham was. And I will champion my friend Teresa every chance I get because she radically changed my life and my calling, and I know that every life I get to be a part of changing is because of my friend Teresa. Let's carry the mat your coworkers, your friends, your family members. It's not that we go around beating them over the head with the Bible. All she simply did was say, Scott, do you want to go to church with me this week? What about, what about this week? And it's not a guilt trip. It was never like you're a horrible person, you're a sinner. It was just, I, I know that you need this. I know that you need this. Will you please come with me? Bribe them. I don't care. I'll take you to lunch. I'll get you coffee. It's at the church. I'll get you a donut. It's at the church. What does it cost you to ask the same person? Your pride? Your fear? What if they say no? They're going to say no. I said no for four months. Four months, people. Four months I rejected my friend every week until I didn't. Who is your Scott? I'm going to end with this. Sorry. Could you imagine if each of us, our goal was just to find one Scott this year? We double the church. We double the kingdom in one year. 100% is pretty stinking good. We're so worried about, I need to change the world. No, you need to change somebody's world. Just one person. That's it. We need to do this together. Link arms, love each other, show up together. Let's pray. Oh, God, I'm passionate. I, could, I literally could go on and on, and I know that they don't want me to. <laughs> God, I'm passionate because it was me. It was me. I was the one that somebody carried a mat for. And if we're sitting in this room and and we know Jesus, somebody carried the mat for us. 
I don't want to, I don't want to just be healed. I want to bring people to the healing place. I don't want to just know Jesus. I want to be healed. I want to, I want to walk in freedom. And so some of us are sitting here and, and, and we know Jesus and we love him, but we haven't allowed healing because we have not done the things that the Bible says to find healing, which is to find people that we could do life with and walk with. When we find healed, healed people, heal people, free people, free people. God, that's our goal. That's our heart. That's, our, that's what we are here for. If, we, if anybody ever wanted to know their purpose, their purpose is to find people that are far from God and show them the goodness of God. We can't do it alone. We can't walk in healing alone. We can't walk through life alone. We can't walk through struggles alone. We can't even walk through joys alone because we want to share it with people. And so, God, I pray that if there's anybody in here that needs healing, that, God, that part of that healing process was they will find their people that they can trust and, and, and be accountable to. God, speak to them, somebody who they could go to and pray with and build relationship with. As we walk through this process, that we ourselves would pick up somebody's mat and carry them to Jesus. Because if not us, who? And if not now, when? See the lost come to find you. The hurting find wholeness. God, I pray that this, this message sits a little heavy on us. That when we go to work, we see maybe our Scott is there. Maybe in our family. Maybe at school. Maybe in our friend group that we've been afraid to because they know us and they know our past. And we're afraid that they may see the hypocrisies of where we're not completely looking like Jesus yet. that we would find that person that we could carry the mat for. God, let us go, therefore. Show ourselves. And show the world the love of God so that we can show them the truth of God. We love you, Jesus. We praise you and give you glory and honor. In your name we pray. Amen. 